Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and a psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. You know what I am? I'm a dog chasing cars. I wouldn't know what to do with one if I caught it. You know, I just do things. The great has spoken! Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain! Who are you? Who are you? A very bad man! I'm a very good man! Good man! Just a very bad wizard. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, according to a recent study, when holes are felt with the tongue, they are perceived to be larger than when they're felt with an index finger. How are we not devoting an entire episode to this study? It's fa- it's a fascinating question. That of- <laughs> so, it, yeah, we saw this article. I think Neuroskeptic, I found it because Neuroskeptic tweeted it. And, and usually when he finds uh, Neuroskeptic is a, is a Twitter account by a, a neuroscientist who, who does a very good job of sort of pointing out absurd, absurd claims, absurd findings, but sometimes just funny ones. And this one, uh, usually he gives a little commentary um, and this one, he's like, I don't even need to say anything. Like, <laughs> I take it that there really is an interesting question there about about what things feel like when touched by fingers versus touched by tongues. You know, our tongue is very, very sensitive, as as you know, Tamler. So yes. the question of how we determine size might really be affected by which sensory organ we're using. <laughs> it's just all about holes. <laughs> like the whole abstract is it's all with like a straight face. But the, the, uh, yeah, big toe, it also talks about interesting. Uh, is there, was there, I only read the abstract, but I wonder if there's some evolutionary argument for, for perceiving the, the size of holes accurately, <laughs> <laughs> a reliableist story about hole perception. There's like a module in the brain, uh, <laughs> a hole perception module. I mean, if you get the size wrong, you might make some very, very bad errors. Some just basic errors that uh, that could really affect your genetic um, success, I guess. <laughs> yes. The extent. Okay. It's titled "The Extent of Skin Bending Rather Than Action." Oh, this is the interesting thing. It wasn't just about this. Apparently, this basic phenomenon that there are different sen- like you you have different sense of the size of a hole has already been documented. They're trying to explain why this is, and they're proposing and rejecting one hypothesis. So, the extent of skin bending rather than action possibilities explains why holes feel larger with the tongue than with the finger. Right. So right. that's an already is- established phenomenon. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Since time immemorial, researchers have pondered. So this is a this is the second sentence of the abstract. This oral illusion has not yet been consistently explained. What other oral illusions are there that have been? <laughs> it's also just sort of expressing surprise. 
that, you know, how have we let this go this far? You know, how have the, the neglect of this phenomenon is it's, it's, you know, mind boggling. It's always uh, hilarious to me. This is especially true, maybe in early grad school or even sort of undergrad thesis level um, writing where, where students will say, surprisingly to date, no one has discussed. And then they'll like say something (laughs) that is like, so not surprising that nobody has ever discussed it. It's such a failure to get outside of your own mind. Like, yeah, you've been thinking about this for six months. Well, it's, (laughs) it's, it's also like, it's a failure to get outside your own mind, but it's also a way of motivating a paper that (laughs) really doesn't need to exist in the first place you know and this one just really speaks for itself like i don't need reasons (laughs) astonishingly (laughs) nobody has responded to the fifth (laughs) counter variation of i had to double check just to make sure that i wasn't dreaming but it turns out (laughs) that nobody (laughs) Yes, there is a gap in the literature, the size of which we determined. So, yes, uh, holes, we're not talking about that, though. Um, no, even it's though too it easy. seems like, yeah, this isn't batting practice. This is the, this is the ALCS. This is, <laughs> we're, we're getting to the World Series. But, f- but for the warm up, let me just read another sentence. Yeah. Results from experiment one to three showed that felt hole size decreases with the pliability of the exploring effector. Tongues. <laughs> greater than index finger, greater than big toe, big fingers, greater than small fingers, which affects skin bending. And that size perception with the highly pliable tongue is more accurate than with a less pliable finger and toe. So if you really want to know the size of a hole, stick that tongue in it, wiggle so, it around. <laughs> right, you have no idea what the hole is if you're X finger. You're getting a little better like with the big toe. Yeah, no, you're getting, yeah, you're getting from small fingers as the most inaccurate, big fingers, index fingers, and then finally tongue. And, and in experiment four, they showed the important moderating variable that it is uh, the tongue's tip. <laughs> that gives you, <laughs> but wait a minute. Rather than its dorsum. Is it like, where is the toe on this spectrum? The, the big toe and the big fingers are um, in the middle of the accuracy uh, Right uh, after yes. small fingers, the like a pinky or whatever, or like one of Trump's fingers. Would, <laughs> yeah, would those be would be inaccurate. the least accurate. Yeah. He has no idea what size holes are around. Him. He's like, <laughs> unless he's he uses his toe, that would be, be that would be <laughs> that would be a little more. No wonder, accurate. no wonder only we know what a big asshole Trump is. He has no idea. One of my favorite Simpsons quotes is when I think it's Lisa goes to the museum and watches a documentary on holes. They have this like fake documentary all about the hole and she's trying to like with excitement tell her family around the dinner table and she says, did you know that the only natural enemy of the hole is the pile? <laughs> <laughs> Whoever wrote that, just drop the, drop the pen right out. <laughs> I'm done for the day. You guys write the rest of this episode. <laughs> All right, so here's what we are talking about. Um, Speaking uh, of absurd. Speaking of absurd. Yeah, so on today's episode, we are going to be talking about the absurd, the absurdity of human existence, um, and specifically a paper by Thomas Nagel on this topic, on the absurd 
Um, and we'll also get into some of Albert Camus' views on the topic and Rick and Morty's views on the topic. But before that, I had an idea, and it was inspired by an email from, and I hope I can say his name, um, Nicholas Van Gordon. And um, he wrote us about a week and a half ago, and he said, first learned of you two when you were guests on the Waking Up podcast. So I did what any sane person would do. I listened to your entire catalog of ec- episodes. It took a this few- This always blows my mind. This is crazy. So, so he's a little, so take this with a grain of salt, because he's a little, he's a little crazy, obviously. But <laughs> he, he gives us a, what he, what he describes as a moral dilemma, um, which is that his father-in-law is colorblind and uh, he, he's colorblind. Of, he has some sort of colorblindness. And now they have, and, and if you haven't seen this, I'm sure on Facebook someone has shared a video of somebody um, opening a box with these glasses that actually allow colorblind people to see color for the, for the first time. And so he says this, they have these new and chroma glasses that can fix many types of colorblindness, and my wife and I decided we should get him a pair for Christmas. And so here's my dilemma. This man has a legit medical condition that we've already decided we're going to correct. We have the means and the inclination, and we're waiting for Christmas to do it? If he had a, if I had a kid and he needed regular glasses, I wouldn't wait for the next gifting holiday to do it. I'd just buy him some damn glasses. Is this different? Every day between now and Christmas will be a day of diminished perception for him, only he doesn't know it. So he was asking, essentially, should is it wrong to wait till Christmas, given that they could get him the glasses? Now, uh, I actually, I, I don't respond, I just don't have time to respond to that many emails, but I got this, and there was something about this that, for whatever reason, like, I immediately just responded. I, I was, like, on my iPad, maybe I was taking a shit, I, no disrespect if I was, and I was like, yes, absolutely, get him the glasses right now. You know, like, this is a no-brainer. This isn't close. Right. This is an ethical no-brainer. It's not even a dilemma. It's like, what if he died between now and, and, and Christmas? And so he right. never got to see color because you guys were waiting for him to, like, open it under the Christmas tree? It's just another way that Christians are sort of slowly ruining the world. But anyway, that's, that's neither here nor there. The, so what this made me think of was... I have such a strong intuition that this is an ethical no-brainer, and I have that about certain other things, and then other things I don't have that intuition. Do we, you know, like other people of our ilk, do we, do we all share the same intuitions about what's an ethical no-brainer and what isn't? Even if we all are ultimately on the same side, do we share the intuitions about just whether something is just we're there's no point in arguing this is this is a settled moral issue um do we all and by do we all i mean sort of people who are sort of like-minded to begin with obviously you know like a neo-nazi and i are not gonna share the same intuitions they, about what they're like wait till christmas yeah <laughs> <laughs> i don't know what accent i just did but that was my neo-nazi you can do german though <laughs> i know i know but i guess i was trying to yeah they're not so so i thought maybe we would just 
test each other and see what's like, do we agree that something is an ethical no brainer or first of all, do you agree with me on this case? Yes. Yes. With some caveats, but I want to say that I think this is an interesting question because there are some things that are real dilemmas. Like there are real, there are questions where we might have strong intuitions, but we see the pull of the other side, right? Like, like, like most of the ethical dilemmas that are used in the literature, like they're true dilemmas and they're, they're meant to have to the, the decision, the choice set is meant to pull you perhaps equally in both directions, perhaps slightly more in one than the other. And so you d- decide it by, by sort of weighing the pros and cons. And, and, and so there might be disagreement on those dilemmas. There are some things that people seem to think are dilemmas, but it is so obvious what the answer is that what I wonder is whether they are just equally strong intuitions about the, the no-brainerness of, of these questions, but they happen to be split. And, and that's why it's an interesting question for some people. But, but my phenomenology when I first hear them is just like, what, why are you asking? Like what, just tell them it's an early Christmas gift. Like, of course, of course. Right. My only caveat is, you know, perhaps they can't afford any other gift or they know that the family will be right. You could imagine as in this video that has been spread widely, but I'll share, I'll share it. You can imagine that maybe they're waiting for all of the kids to be, around the Christmas tree or part of the family that chipped in can't be there yet. Like there are some reasons that I think would actually change it. But if it's I don't like, know, why if you're would some you? cousin who is like, wait, I want to be there when he does it. Like <laughs> you're going to wait for this guy. Like this guy has to right. wait to see color for three months so that you right. can be there and watch it. No, I, right. I don't even agree with that. Like, well, maybe, but may, maybe what you're failing to take into account is the happiness of the collective group. Like they all get to see their, their joy. I mean, you would have to argue that their joy, even, even the collective joy would trump, would trump the deficit of his, of his, uh, you know, disability. Um, and, and so, so I could see it, but that's all to say that like, I have the str- same strong quick, you would have to really defeat my intuition with good reasons on the other side that clearly weren't expressed in the email. So yeah, obvious. You know, I don't know how much of a deficit it is to live colorblind. So, I don't, you know, it's, it's not like a wheelchair for a, for a handicapped person who can't walk. <laughs> Wait till right. Christmas. Like before. <laughs> you know, what would suck if it's like December 28th and all of a sudden they can make the person walk. And then it's like, <laughs> oh, man. Just missed it. All right. Well, you know. What's, the, what's this big thing in the closet? <laughs> Leave it. Leave it. <laughs> Believe me, in one year, your life would be a lot better. Yeah, these sunglasses are amazing. It's like, but it's like, yeah, Mary, Mary the color scientist. Would you just keep her in the box until Christmas? <laughs> right. <laughs> so now what we need to do, we can finally settle that question. We just have to find somebody who's colorblind, who knows all the physical facts about color. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we don't have to speculate about that, that question anymore. Right. Yeah. This we'll learn whether dualism line. is true or not. You know, it's like it's a pretty big deal. Finally, um, finally, philosophy can actually answer a question. This was my point, kind of my point, and I don't want to talk about it now. Well, I'm sure we'll talk about it more. But in the Star Trek transporter case, where to me it was right. like a no, it's such a no brainer that I'm shocked. It's not that it, it's not that I'm shocked that people disagree. Upon reflection, it's that I'm shocked that that in the poll that we did on Twitter, the very scientific poll, 
you know, full on 35% have a completely different intuition um, than I had. And it seems like a really, really, it's so obvious to those people in the same way that it's obvious to me. So, so I don't know if anybody has the opposite. There's a few like that where everyone seems to agree that it's a no brainer, but they, it's a no brainer different ways. Like in the different ways. Yeah. Like the Newcomb's, uh, is it Newcomb's paradox? Yeah. Newcomb's paradox. Right. The, the thing with the box and the, right. Um, the, the all-knowing alien or godlike creature that knows what you're going to choose. So um, I have a couple yeah. more, and, and, and I'm not saying that I think they're no-brainers, but I'm wondering if you do, and I wouldn't okay. know whether you think they're a no-brainer or not. This is, this is now like a, a Supreme Court case about a, um, a, a, someone who, who is a baker, and he bakes beautiful cakes. There was just a New York Times article about this. He bakes wedding cakes and a same-sex couple tried to hire him to bake a wedding cake and he refused um, saying that it would violate his Christian faith and hijack his right to express himself. And he's You know, staunchly opposed to same-sex marriage for religious reasons, and so he felt like he had the right to refuse to bake a a cake, Um, and um, and ultimately this went to the Supreme Court. The couple filed civil rights charges saying that they had been demeaned and humiliated as they sought to celebrate their their union. So do you, so here's the question and the question is do you think this is a a no-brainer should bakeries be who who bake wedding cakes in general should they be forced to um, bake wedding cakes for same-sex weddings, even when they have strong religious opposition to the practice. Right. So it's it's not a str- as strong a no-brainer, but it it's pretty close to a no-brainer that um, that yes, he should bake a cake for whoever for whatever reason. No, but it, uh, that's not the question that I'm asking. Not whether he should bake the cake, but whether. The government, the government should should, be, should compel him to bake a cake. Uh, um, well, if he's a baker, <laughs> yeah. There's a way of framing it where, on where I, I see I see the difference here in in saying that they should compel him to bake it for a particular customer versus forbid him from not baking it, from not selling things to certain people. Yes. The, the the ethical dilemma isn't about the baker himself. It's yeah. about the the government yeah, yeah, yeah. and what law they either have or don't have. Yeah, it's 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 not a strong no brainer to me, but it seems to me that it's fairly strong that, yes, the government um, can can step in and tell him that he's not allowed to to not sell. So to me, this is closer to a no-brainer on the other side, but not really that close. To me, it's kind of, it's in some ways an ethical toss-up. But if I had, like, gun to my head, I would say that the government shouldn't be in the business of telling people who they can bake cakes for and who they can't. Um, But then there's the, like, what if the baker didn't want to, 
bake for an interracial marriage, right. then it's like you have <laughs> That's to. What I was say. Then you have to like <laughs> like bite that bullet, right? And That's uh, the, and biting those biting all of those bullets is what makes it close to an, a no brainer in the in the other direction for me. Yeah, so here's the I guess the way I would the reason why that's that's doesn't do that for me is if it was a Jewish baker that didn't want to bake for a um uh, a marriage like let's say when I got married to my wife who's not Jewish like and some baker didn't want to bake a cake for me uh but it, you know like a Jewish baker who just thought it was wrong what I was doing I, I, I would think that they should have that right to do it. There, I, I think that there's something special about the interracial case that makes it sort of in a category of its own that, what about does, if, that doesn't extend oh. to these other. Maybe it's because there's no real religious objection that you could have to interracial marriage, but I don't think that's what's driving the intuition. Well, what if it's just like uh, I don't want I don't want Mexicans to continue having kids, and I know that if Mexicans get married, the chances are higher. So no cakes for Mexicans. But again, there's no conceivable religious like no uh, motivation but, for that. So uh, so you're saying that they just couldn't interfere in if it's religiously motivated, sincerely religiously motivated, and yeah. Right. And then, yeah, and I do think that, yeah, so certainly if it's, I don't think Mexicans should should keep having kids and if this cake. There goes will, my, there goes my cakes for everyone but Jews uh, uh, cake store idea. <laughs> right. I know. You've been like launching that, right? You did a Kickstarter for that. <laughs> um, mine cake store, I call it. Um, <laughs> is the... <laughs> Is that too too far? Is what about just being of another religion? Um, yeah, right. Like I don't have a problem with that. Like let's say a Jewish baker didn't want to be, or, or a Christian baker. Well, so I think it depends, right? It depends. It depends who's. <laughs> <laughs> Jews are allowed to discriminate is the is the uh is at the heart of it. <laughs> no, I think I, I guess if a Christian didn't want to make a cake yeah, no, I actually don't have a problem with that. Like I would make the cake, I would just put lard in it and not tell them. I mean, if their reasoning is, you know, you killed Jesus, I'm not making a cake for your wedding, I understand that. <laughs> Apparently, Jesus meant a lot to you people, so. He was our favorite Jew. Yeah. He's our favorite Jew. He loved Number you one so Jew. much, he stretched out his arms and died. For um, okay, mine is is this. Um, you you have to suspend your disbelief that in your, in your advanced age, you can have another child. But you can. You and Jen decide to have another child. Uh, easy fix. Hundred hundred bucks for a procedure that would uh, guarantee that your child have a one standard deviation higher IQ than mm. than everyone else. So to me, no brainer. If fuck yeah, like I can make my kids smarter. Yeah, hell yeah. Like a little genetic, little, little tweak. Yeah, a little tweak. Like there's a little you know there's a little little chain there that we could just like uh, uh, tweak and and obviously like. Assuming that that there's no, you know, they're not also by doing this have like, you know, four arms or. Would you? Would I do it? I'd have to go back and read Flowers for Algernon. (laughs) (laughs) The the seminal text on. (laughs) It is definitely not an ethical no-brainer for me for a couple reasons. Number one, judging by our current child, 
she's already so smart. <laughs> what I, and although we've never had her tested for IQ, what I imagine is such a just astronomical IQ that being a standard deviation smarter than that could I could lead to something possibly unprecedented. Well, it's not a standard deviation smarter than your current child. Let's just say that you have like the odds are that the next one will be of average intelligence and you can guarantee um, that they would be smarter than whatever they're going to be born. So you don't know. You're rolling the dice. All you're adding is a standard deviation to whatever they're going to be. Right. But I'm just saying that like nature has already guaranteed <laughs> nature has already guaranteed genius. like the highest safe degree <laughs> of intelligence like before she like tries to or he you know like take over the world or no okay all joking aside um i do actually think that there's probably and i don't know if there's research we didn't talk about this but i wonder if at a certain point the sort of benefits from a high iq start to level off so like with income but even if you had those concerns and it levels off like what's where's the harm like there would get the benefits harm, yeah. Since, right yeah I, I guess the harm is that you're is like, it the hundred bucks should it, i have made it ten ten dollars instead of 100 it does seem like <laughs> yes the hundred dollars <laughs> <laughs> you know my intuition changed <laughs> no i actually really do have very mixed feelings about like fucking with genomes and i know that's yeah and i don't i know that's i have no general reason for that and it would change on a dime if you talked about something like health like oh yeah. like she's the, the the child's gonna be born with some like you know medical impairment and you know the like there'll be even if it was like that you know she'll be uh, she'll have really bad vision and we'll have right. to immediately have glasses by the time she's three or something I, right I would probably say yeah sure go for it but something like intelligence it's like you're altering their their like who they are. I, like to me, it's like really, and, and I'm not, I'm not saying you're dumb for having th like a dilemma there. I'm just saying that for me, like phenomenologically, the minute I hear it, I'm like, I don't even get why you wouldn't. Right. Like I, right. It's like, yeah. It's like, well, that's so, what's it's so like, interesting about this. Yeah, right. Like it's, what about like a, like a, um, attractiveness? Yeah. I mean, again, I think it depends what your sort of baseline is, but, um, and I don't, and I don't know what the research is on attractiveness and well-being, but um, you get all kinds. But you do get all kinds of benefits for being attractive. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, I know you wouldn't know this no. firsthand, but <laughs> I don't know. Like, like those are the kinds of things that I don't totally want to fuck with. Yeah, but I don't. I don't have a good reason for it. All right, one more, and then we got go to our okay. main topic. You have to imagine that you're the president of a private university, not a public institution, okay. but a private institution. And one of your student conservative organizations has invited Richard Spencer, your boy, to speak. This organization, they are a legitimate organization. And in the past, their speakers, like most conservative student groups tended to be mostly libertarians, uh, along with the occasional more cuddly conservative, like, you know, like a David Brooks, a John yeah. Pod, uh, Pod Hurt, Pod Hurts, uh, Ross Doubt, that, you know, that kind of, so, so like nice, like you, the, the conservative, <laughs> I think as someone said, that you'd be happy introducing to your, to your parents. <laughs> 
you know. Uh, <laughs> but this time they invited Richard Spencer, and they, you know, they argued in, in doing so that it's important to hear the the side, the opinion of what seems to be a not insignificant percentage of the population. Um, you know, all the, the the general protests and the anger sort of surrounds this, and you're the president. Do you, ought you to cancel this organization? And you would be within your legal rights to, to do so because it's a private institution. Do you cancel it? Yeah. I is it, At a private institution that where I had any power, I would say, I, I would, no brainer. No, he's not coming. Yeah. So you're not pulled by the sort of John Stuart Mill. I you know it's really important to hear all the sides of uh, a debate, even if you are vehemently opposed to it. I am, but I think that's what classrooms are for, right? So, so if you were to tell me that um, as part of a course on white supremacy in the U.S., you people were going to watch uh, Richard Spencer talk or read something that he wrote. I would never change the curriculum. But I think that inviting somebody over is a whole bu- it's a, a expense in the college that, um, I, that there's no good reason for me to think that I am betraying my value of, of sort of educating people about different perspectives by not inviting him. And on the, on the other hand, I think that... But as, you're not... The, the question is whether you... Not whether you invite him, but whether you allow the student organization to invite him. Yeah. And you could yeah. imagine they might have funding of their own to do it. Yeah. Um, I, but again, again, at a state school, it's very, very different. At a state school, I would, I would hope there would be enough funds that if there were enough students who wanted to invite them who attended my university, I would do everything I could to make sure that it was smooth and there was a dissenting opinion. And I would do my best to teach kids how to protest right and not shout them down. Um, because That's interesting that you have such and, – and, and the difference there is only that it's the law that you have to, right? Uh, yeah, but, but for, I think for good reason that the state law, like a state-run institution, should have a law like that. So it's more than just that I want to abide by the law. Yeah, what's pulling me is that white supremacy is so obviously immoral here that, that it's like, you know – I would also refuse a serial killer who came to promote like cool ways to murder people. Right. I mean, I, I agree with you on that one. Um, no. I, I, it's not a no brainer to me. Uh, and if I was the president, I would probably cancel it, but I would feel very uncertain that I was doing the right thing. I would just be a little bit more confident that I was doing the right thing than if I allowed him to speak. But I, but it would be, you know, because I, I, I am, I, I do find those principles of free speech to be important and not something that you sacrifice lightly. I, I agree with you, but to me, that's not a no-brainer. Yeah, uh, maybe I would invite him um, with the condition that he determine the size of my asshole as accurately <laughs> as, as he can possibly do. ask for the tongue <laughs> settle on the toe it's tough because because these are cases where um a private institution may view themselves as co-signing sort of it's a reflection of who are what our values are like who we invite I was very opposed to my alma mater Pacific Union College refusing to have an atheist speak for the reasons that you said um 
there's no conceivable way in which I think white supremacy is an idea that needs to be heard by like in person by my by my students and that that uh, but again I would never ever prevent in fact if it became an issue I would set up a whole course on on say white supremacy to make sure that they were hearing these I think that, that you don't need to invite people to to make sure that their views are represented There's another way and I don't know if this is rationalizing but I would say that the conservative student group who who you know, like you probably know these students to some degree. We're assuming that they're not white supremacists themselves. They're kind of inviting him to make a point, like the people who invited yeah, Milo right. and the people right. who invited, you know, like Ann Coulter or whatever. So they're like they're they're doing it not because they think it's probably not because they think that it's important that uh, that they hear these views just in case you know there's something in there that they you know at, at the same time like. You could imagine that the the whole point of them inviting is to defend Mill, you know, like defend on liberty that view, which is pretty clear on this point that it's actually it's actually helpful even when they're 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 presenting a view that's obviously false. It's it's helpful to hear that view and to know like what the other side is thinking and why they're thinking it, even if it's almost certainly 99.9999% false. It enlivens your sense of why you're against it. And it just kind of gives you a little insight into what the, the minds of these people. And that's like probably a worthwhile endeavor, or at least you could imagine them sort of being mill absolutists about this and that's not that and it's and that isn't in itself necessarily an objection an objectionable position no but i do think that there there are such clear cases where you're not necessarily defending mill by inviting sort of absurd views like you know somebody wanted to come and talk about how like you know aliens landed in egypt and, and spread their technology um, like that is a perspective. Is it a perspective that needs to be heard such so that our values survive? But I take what you're saying. Like I, I wish it were the case that I were more confident that this could be a teaching moment because I can imagine having a yeah. sincere conversation with a conservative group and asking them why they want to invite these people. And if they just want to invite them because to rabble rouse, it'd be one thing. But I would, I would try to do a lot by way of saying, okay, is it that you think these ideas are worthwhile and being to be heard or are you just being a dick? Cause and we then, can like YouTube it and show. So yeah. w w let's say they came with a compromise and said, we will YouTube or live stream him. Yeah. Um, Part of it is what I don't know. I don't know this guy well, cause I don't run in the circles that you do of Boston, Massachusetts, uh, <laughs> Uh, white Stop. supremacists, <laughs> but is he from Boston? Uh, um, I don't think he's from. Boston. He, he was born. He was born there. It says on his Wikipedia. Yeah. Um, uh, and is is he just a, a demagogue trying to rile people up, or is he actually like Murray? Is a different thing. If Murray has like some interesting points to make about, he's from about Dallas. Society. That's not true. He's from right. Dallas. I remember because uh, that guy from the Boston. Atlantic uh, wrote a, a long piece on him. The the same one that wrote what ISIS really wants. He wrote a long piece on going to school with Richard Spencer. Yeah, he grew up in Dallas. Yeah. Um, he just happened to be born in Massachusetts. Um, he went to Duke University as well. Jesus. Um, <laughs> I am Richard Spencer. <laughs> 
Oh yeah, from 2000 to 2000, 2005 to 2007, he was a PhD student at Duke University. Um, <laughs> I so, would say we overlapped. There in you what, go. Uh, studying modern European intellectual history, where he was a member of the Duke Conservative Union. No. I I almost do think though that um, that it would be good if I were in charge of an educational institution. It would be very good to to train my students in dealing with people whose ideas they found abhorrent by actually having some yeah. sort of venue where every every semester we invited somebody who one group of students had voted as as abhorrent and and we structured it such that they would write have a chance to debate um and it, it, i think we're just failing it's we, you know we've talked to death about this, but I think we're failing students in terms of how, how to properly deal with people whose ideas they find abhorrent. And I don't think that projecting white supremacist over him while he's speaking, for instance, is the best way to go about doing it. There is a kind of Pollyannish way of, of imagining how this could go, you know, asking devastating, making devastating criticisms to him as he's speaking, (laughs) but it just doesn't, it just tempers run so high with this stuff. It's a really complicated issue. That's what. That's another reason why I hate when the debate is about free speech on campus is reduced to special snowflakes versus like Nazis, and because I think that there are these kind of margin or, or borderline cases that are that are really complex and really tough and that I think universities are sort of stumbling their way to trying to handle, uh, trying to figure out the right way to handle them under the circumstances, all the while when social media just adds this new complication that nobody has any way of understanding how to uh, incorporate in a wise way. So it's just like really, really, really tough. Yeah. Yeah. The, The logistics have changed. Um, all right. All right. That's it for our moral dilemmas. No brainer or not. Supposed to be a lot more fun than it got. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no brainer. Abortion. <laughs> all right. We'll be right back to talk about the absurd.
Glare it in your Jeep, glare it, glare it in your Jeep. In my sleep sometimes, glare it in your Jeep so your peeps can stare at the rhymes. Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. Um, like to take a moment to thank everybody for their support. We've gotten tons of emails. We really appreciate it. We've even gotten in some arguments over email. We really do read them <laughs> yes, all. Yes, we have. <laughs> we, re- we really, yes. Um, we really do read them all, and we appreciate anybody reaching out, whether it's to uh, tell us how awesome we are or how not awesome we are or how they disagree with us about transporters or anything. So if you would like to uh, engage in conversation with us or with our community more broadly, um, you can go to email us at verybadwizards at gmail.com. You can tweet to us at Tamler, at Peas, or at Very Bad Wizards. You can join the generally lively discussions on Facebook, on, at the Very Bad Wizards Facebook site. And now you can even go to the uh, subreddit um, uh, of Very Bad Wizards. Uh, good discussions going there. Uh, thank you so much for all that time and the support, the time that it even takes to to let us know that you appreciate what we're doing really actually matters um, to us. And we're very grateful. If you'd like to support us in other ways, um, you can go to our support page at verybadwizards.com and just click on the support tab. One of the things you can do still, up, uh, at least so far, is is purchase things through Amazon as you would normally, but click through our link first and you pay what you normally would, but we get a little, little bit of that um, from Amazon. You can donate to us via PayPal or you can become one of our supporters on Patreon and get a few rewards. We should, have we solicited ideas for, inc- for more rewards? We should let's Let's just do that officially right now. Yeah, Um, we want to solicit more ideas for rewards. Like, would you be interested in a kind of private ask me anything like live chat? Whatever your ideas are, we'll definitely consider them. Right. Um, Right. Let us know uh, on email, Facebook, Twitter, on Patreon comments itself. Um, Right now we do a newsletter for our supporters Um, I do a beat compilation CD that I'm about to release, um, three of those so far. And, uh, what else do we we allow them to choose an episode? And we allow you to to choose, actually choose an episode. And that's where the infamous intelligence, uh, two episodes came from. Uh, rate us on iTunes. So we can can rate us on iTunes. Yeah. Rate us on iTunes. Subscribe to us on iTunes. We've gotten some great, um, Great, great iTunes comments. reviews lately. And and actually, if you do rate us on iTunes or subscribe via iTunes, um, then we can move past the Partial Examined Life guys that Tamler is so, so intent on doing. And I should say, while I say that, that I am, I don't know when they're going to release the episode. Uh, you might be hearing this before it gets released or after, but I am on one of the upcoming episodes of Partial Examined Life. This is uh, like Vichy. You, you just doing that. What's Vichy? Vichy, like the French uh, surrendering and collaborating with the Nazis. Oh, uh, uh, yeah. You're so hoity-toity for me. That's what yeah. this is like. Like you are collaborating <laughs> with the Nazis. Um, you did it first. You, you did it first. I was just happy that a philosoph- a real philosophy podcast would, would be willing to have me on. When I did, <laughs> when I did it, it wasn't clear you know, to the extent of their evil. 
<laughs> um, we talked about on that episode. It was actually great fun. Those guys were fun to record with. We talked about yeah, uh, the original Milgram paper on obedience, the original Stanford prison experiment paper uh, by Zimbardo. And so interesting that, that they decided not to invite the guy who actually went to Philip Zimbardo's house in San Francisco yeah. and talked with him. Very weird that they would invite a social psychologist who studies this for a living, <laughs> rather, rather than somebody who, who touched the robe of Zimbardo. <laughs> yeah. Was he in a robe? So thank you all. We appreciate all your support. Follow us on Instagram, Very Bad Wizards. Okay, so today we are going to talk about the absurd, this... Um, I guess it's a philosophical idea, but it's really a sort of experience that um, we all share to some degree or another just in virtue of being human. Just by way of introducing it, I'll tell a story that... I bet you your your dogs feel the absurd all the time. I don't know why you have to leave it to be... Well, I mean, the, not according to Nagel, as we'll get to that, 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 well, let me just tell the story. So, which also involves an animal, but it was actually my, uh, so I'm living with my then girlfriend, now wife, and we're, we have a place in San Francisco and we have a cat named Prune, who was a great cat, lived with us for 16 years. And, and we're watching something, we're watching a movie and he walks past the 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 TV and we call to him you know like come on the come on the couch cuddle with us and he just doesn't even look at us like maybe he gestured his head towards us like he just kind of keeps walking he doesn't break stride he doesn't he's a cat you know like that's kind of how cats are then he goes into the kitchen and just like we look over cuz we and he's just licking his butt and so, and so we were like, we, we turned to each other. It was like, oh yeah, he's busy. Like that was the thing. Like that, that was how he kind of gave a kind of, uh, an expression of no, like I'm busy right now. And then like the thing that he ends up doing is like licking his butt. And we thought that was so funny. Oh, look, this cat like thinks he has all these important things to do. He's too important to like come on the couch and get a quick snuggle. And then, you know, I remember stepping back and being kind of like, well, I mean, is that that are we that different than that? <laughs> you know, like in what sense are we that different? Like when we say when that I, we are busy, in what sense do we have anything more cosmically important to do than than just lick our butts? Now we when I lick someone's butt, believe me, it's cosmic. <laughs> it's cosmic. And accurate. It's the one thing that steps me out of this meaningless existence. And it gives you a really accurate size of the whole. Exactly. Uh, or an accurate like impression of the size of the hole. So um, speaking of assholes, Dave is back to the vape, back to the e-cigarettes. I, I brought this out on purpose to give you a sense of absurdity. <laughs> you know, this is something I, I, I don't know if I'd probably read The Stranger, Camus' The Stranger in, in French class, later would read the Camus' The Myth of Sisyphus. And he is the first person to sort of investigate this idea, which he called the absurd and try to describe what it entailed. And according to Camus, it isn't just the universe being meaningless, and it isn't just something about us. It's the combination of those two things. So it is our 
inescapable, inevitable belief that there's some sort of meaning and purpose to the universe combined with the universe, the silence, as he says, of the universe, the, the, the ultimate meaningless of the universe. So, and, and, and more generally, the absurd captures the, the phenomenon when our pretensions are, our pretensions clash with reality. Biggest, his, his most famous example is the myth of Sisyphus, and, uh, of Sisyphus pu pushing up a boulder, taking all of his strength, trying to get that boulder to the top of the mountain, only to see it roll down again. And he has to walk back down and do it again. And anyone who's had kind of a mind-numbing job that you <laughs> sometimes, like, you know, you check in every day, you have to, then you go home, and then you just get up in the morning and do it all over again, it's like, that's, you, you, you can uh, relate to that kind of experience, but I think it only truly becomes absurd when you start to think that the job is important for some reason. And, right. and then when you step back and realize that it's not. Yeah, this countless imagery of this in movies, right? Where the a little montage of the day in, the day out, the rigmarole to try to like communicate, like, what are you doing? Like, what are you, do you know? And it, doesn't Fight Club have something a little like this? Yeah, I mean, I think, <laughs> yeah, like, fight, yeah. like, I think there's, yeah, the, even like a doc, there was a documentary I saw about uh, bugs, microcosmos, I think. And there's this like dung beetle and you see the dung beetle. And I had experienced this actually in Badlands in South Dakota, seeing this dung beetle pushing a, uh, it really was like the myth of Sisyphus, but with a dung beetle. <laughs> and, but it like the, the thing that's so cool about the microcosmos is like the dung, I think there, it's like, you start to really care about whether this dung beetle can get over this hump, you know, like it becomes like the most important thing. You become emotionally invested in it. And, I know, and you think like the cameraman must be an asshole if he doesn't eventually just help that poor thing. Out, <laughs> yeah. You know? It's like, come on, give the cut the guy some slack. It's hard out here for a dung beetle, you know? <laughs> yeah, so I definitely get this sense of absurdity all the time. One of the things I love about this essay that Nagel uh, uh, starts off with is he says, so what What do people say when, when they say that? Because it, it, it makes sense, like when you say, man, this life is meaningless. Like people kind of get it. But he starts this essay off with one of the, like, just the best little bits of philosophy. It's like a page, right? Where he says, well, here are some of the things people say for why they think life is absurd, right? So he gives three things. Is that right? I think so. Yeah. A million years from now is the first thought. What's it going to matter a million years from now? Like what we're doing now, it's not going to matter, right? Like there's going to be the heat death. This is what, this is where the little Rick and Morty, um, uh, clip. The sun's going to die a slow heat death. All of humanity most certainly will be wiped out long before that. Um, how could this life possibly matter? These little 70 plus or minus 20 years that we get on this life, like what does it matter? And he says, well, look, you could live a million years, but a meaningless life isn't going to be meaningful by dint of it being a million years long. Right. So it is it is meaningless, whether it is 50 years long or 20 years long or a million. Years we could long. live the you, entire life of the universe. <laughs> yeah, there is no there is no number there that would all of a sudden magically give it meaning. Right. Um, and then and then he says, yeah, the size this is one of my favorite uh, Nagel quotes that I paraphrase all the time because it's just so well put. He says sometimes people say, well, we're like a mere speck of dust in the vast cosmos. And, and in fact, 
I've thought about using some of these uh, videos where they show you the scale of the universe. So they zoom out from like an atom all the way to like clusters of galaxies. And you realize how fucking big the universe is. And that does give you some sense of the absurdity of like taking this life in this so importantly, right? I mean, so, that's like the dung beetle in the desert, right? It's like... Yeah. It, for for it, it's the most important thing getting that <laughs> right. piece of dung. Like, but there's this not only entire desert like surrounding it, but an entire world. There's like people in China and Indonesia and Africa and like right. you know, like right. the dung beetle knows nothing about that. But thinks yeah, if that, only it knew how stupid, <laughs> how stupid what it's doing. Yeah. Um. And and uh, again, Nagel says something like, you know, how how big would <laughs> would we have to be to get meaning? Like, you know, if we were huge giants that took up two-thirds of the universe would we magically like exactly. become winner you know and so so it can't be that right um hold on my was, dog speaking of absurd beings okay. my dog is uh, <laughs> making noise charlie get in the house get in the house he's actually not absurd because at no point does he can does he have the ability to step back and question whether what he's doing is important? Like, I'm am I lit? Is this my life? Watching Tamler take a shower. This is this is life. No, he's not this the one that take. That's that's Omar. Oh, that's he's, Omar. That's yeah. Omar. Sorry. Charlie like wouldn't like he's above watching me take a shower. <laughs> <laughs> he's too he's too busy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay, so finally Nagel says, you know, here's another inadequate argument. He says, uh, just the knowledge that we're going to eventually die can make it seem as if everything we're doing is for naught. So, you know, you you work hard. Why? Because uh, you want to pay for college. Why? Because you want to get an education to get a better job. Um, but, you know, you're going to and you, you want to put food on the table. But at the end of the day, you, we're all going to die. So there's no what to what end are we doing this? We're just subsisting. Um, it's an it, elaborate journey leading nowhere. Yeah. Um, and so even though, even if you have some effect on other people's lives, that doesn't, all that does is push it back a little bit because their lives are also, they're going to end. Right. Um, I don't even get this one. Like this one doesn't pull me. The other ones pull me to some degree, but this one is, uh, yeah. I mean, I can see where if you live, if you're living in a subsistence sense where every day you got to fish just so that you can eat that at night, right. You're just like. Yeah, this is what I do. I just fish so that I can eat at night so that I can fish the next morning. Like it is a self-perpetuating chain of like right. just just existing. I guess, you know, the, the the way that this plays out in everyday life is, okay, if I can just, you know, get that promotion or I can just uh, get you always, you always have these sorts of justifications for what you're doing right now that will then end and ultimately that just ends with your you dying with you dying yeah that's right uh, really what's the point of those things like once you're dead right. like did it matter that you got the promotion not really you're still dead you're just you're no more or less dead because right. you did all those things <laughs> and so right yeah i guess right. yeah <laughs> the other ones uh, well, for whatever reason even though I th- i'm convinced by nago that they don't fully explain or they don't even like get at the heart of what the philosophical sense of absurdity is the other ones sort of pull me more than this yeah one. yeah yeah i mean and, and for that one nagel says well like it's not as if as if there aren't you sort of activities within life that are self-justifying like they don't all need to be justified by some higher thing right sometimes you just do something his example is sometimes you just take an aspirin 
for a headache. That's that. It doesn't need, right. y- you're not really like at a loss for why you did that because yeah. why do, you know, nobody's like feeling absurd because why do I need to get rid of my headache? Sometimes there's just an obvious way in which local goals are meaningful in of themselves. Like you don't need a, it, not everything needs to be justified by some external um, or higher order goal. Um so then he f- gives, he says, these things are like metaphors. All of these things are metaphors for what is the true sense of absurdity that we undeniably experience but aren't able to articulate exactly. And so here's what he says. He says, if there is a philosophical sense of absurdity, it must arise from the perception of something universal, some respect in which pretension and reality inevitably clash for us all, this condition is supplied by the collision between the seriousness with which we take our lives and the perpetual possibility of everything about which we are serious as arbitrary or open to doubt. Yeah. That's the heart of it. That's the heart of it. That's what it is. It's the fact that we take, we can't help but take our lives and our actions and our beliefs completely seriously. But all of those, our deepest values, our deepest convictions uh, at every level can be we we are able to, and this is part of this is part of why a dog, my dog can't experience this or the dung beetle can't experience this we can always step back and question why this thing is justified that we care so much about this value that we can always step back and ask why it matters and like the dung beetle can't just pause and be like wait why am i doing this again right (laughs) <laughs> that's that's something and that's the way in which I think according to Nagel anyway human beings are only able to experience the absurd because for animals they just don't have that uh, I don't know maybe like elephants do or something but most <laughs> animals just don't step back and question whether what they're doing really matters but we can always do that and we can never get a satisfactory answer to those doubts according to Nagel there is we can I mean there's a lot of great quotes but yeah um, let's actually get a couple of paragraphs before your quote which is the heart of the absurd yeah. he gives some uh, a couple of examples which actually help me get a sense of of, of the meaning of absurd in this case, which is, you know, he says, look, there are, there are instances of lo- kind of local instances of absurdity that, that really highlight this. So when he says that it's a discrepancy between pretension and reality or aspiration and reality, he says someone, for instance, someone gives a complicated speech in support of a motion that has already been passed. <laughs> Right. You're just like, hey, all that work you just put, it doesn't matter. It's already been passed. Like it's, uh, you declare your love over the telephone to a recorded announcement. <laughs> As you are being knighted, your pants fall down. Right. Like this, this mismatch. Um, and that's Cam, uh, that's the Camus thing too. It's this like sort of, you think that this thing has profound importance, but it doesn't. Or like, right. yeah. Right. So we're always able to take a meta step beyond what it is we're doing. And that meta step is what's making us realize that like that whatever activity we're involved in doesn't seem justified if you take a kind of impersonal view, right? If you take a step outside of yourself and you say, this is just really, this is, 
this is life. This is this, <laughs> this is the shit we're doing now. Like, why am I doing this? And, and, and what's really interesting, this is completely inescapable. We both can't avoid having the sort of consciousness to be able to step back and question what it is that we're doing. But we also can't avoid taking our lives with uh, the utmost seriousness, like to really think that what we're doing matters. And even when we kind of say, screw it, like, okay, it doesn't matter. It still matters. Like, you know, we, we just us doing that is, is, is taking something seriously. Right. Yeah. In this case, the idea that nothing matters, we take that seriously. And then and, and in any case, we can only do that for a certain period of time. And then we just go back to our everyday lives where things start to matter to us again. Right. Yeah. By the way, my I have the the, the most Sisyphean intuitions with grocery shopping. That's when I really feel <laughs> the absurdity of life. I'm like. I'm buying milk now and I'm just going to have to come to the same fucking place to do this a week later. Like this is just, this, this is just like the circle of like meaninglessness that I'm in. Like I have to, for me, it's more when I'm like trying to make a decision between two like types of, I don't know, like potato chip or like, you know, like, and I'm like looking at the ingredients and I'm like, I, so at that moment I take that really seriously. Like which, which bag of chips do I get for this? If you're out of like shopping for fish, like which fish do I get? Um, I can't every, as I was rereading this essay, there are so many quotes from Rick and Morty that highlight the various things that Nagel says that I feel like I'm going to put together a Rick and a Rick and Morty viewing guide based on this because this well, is you're going to sign me some Rick and Morty's right yeah 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 we're going to sign some Rick and Morty's and talk about it um, but this is the 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 utter meaninglessness of every activity that we engage in is at the heart of that series right um, because there's one character that has a literal universal view of reality and given that he knows how big and how, uh, you know, how the, the knowledge of the multiverse and there being infinite copies of us or whatever, it just leads, it, it, it cripples him to engage in life with that sort of seriousness that we normally just fall into, right? Because we have no other choice. Well, so that's, so this is a way in which, so there was a clip and we'll put a link to this that you sent me of the, the creator of Rick and Morty talking about this. The knowledge that nothing matters while accurate gets you nowhere. The planet is dying, the sun is exploding, the universe is cooling, nothing's gonna matter. The further back you pull, the more that truth will endure. But when you zoom in on Earth, when you zoom into a family, when you zoom into a human brain and a childhood and experience, you see all these things that matter. We have this fleeting chance to participate in an illusion called, I love my girlfriend, I love my dog. How is that not better? Knowing the truth, which is that nothing matters, can actually save you in those moments. Nobody exists on purpose. Nobody belongs anywhere. Everybody's gonna die. Come watch TV. Once you get through that terrifying threshold of accepting that, then every place is the center of the universe and every moment is the most important moment and everything is the meaning of life. Uh, That character with 
another character who's like the dad on the show who just kind of lives his normal life, punching the clock, thinking that what he does matters. And then he asks, who is happier between the two of them? <laughs> right. and, and, and says that it's sort of the dad who, his, and his happiness sort of derives from the fact that he is, for the most part, ignorant of right. the meaninglessness of, of what he's doing. I actually think that's very different than what Nagel is saying. That's much more along the lines of what Camus maybe is talking about. Camus would say, yes, you know, it, it's absurd when we think something matters and that there's meaning to it and it doesn't. I don't know. The way the creator makes this dad character sound, it's almost like he really is an animal. Like he's yeah, somebody yeah. with no consciousness, no ability to step back and question whether That's what right. he's doing has importance or not. Whereas what Nagel is saying is by virtue of being human, everyone has that ability right, to some right. degree or another. And that's what leads to our absurdity. And if we didn't have that, then our lives wouldn't be absurd. Yeah, exactly. So he's, so Jerry, the character, you know, he, he really makes it seem as if he is more like a Sisyphus who's never bothered to realize that there's no point in what he's right. doing. He's like, oh, I got to get this right. <laughs> rock up this mountain and yeah. then it falls down. And it's like, oh, yeah. I really got to go back down. There. And he's like, every single time he's almost yeah. there, he's just as happy as the last time. <laughs> right. <laughs> so it's just the ability to see, to see our own shit from the outside that is is causing this, right? Yeah. This is just uh, this is a, a byproduct yeah. for Nagel. It's a byproduct of our ability to to see take a step away, as it were, to take a, a, a step outside of our lives. That, and I think what's sort of interesting, you know, this relates to some of his other views, but um, we can come up with a system of justification for our values and for what we think is important. But then the thing that we can also do is step back and question the whole system of justification yeah. that, that we're using. So he says, we step back to find the whole system of justification and criticism, which controls our choices and supports our claims to rationality, rests on responses and habits that we never question, and that we should not know how to defend without circularity, and to which we shall continue to adhere even after they are called into question. And and then he brings epistemological skepticism as kind of an analogy. You know, we have this system that sort of tells us when our beliefs are justified and when they aren't. But that whole system of justification, you know, you take it back to a certain point and you have to defend it on faith, essentially. Right. Like you really just have to like there's certain basic epistemological principles, whether, you know, it's, it's induction or uh, simplicity, you know, Occam's razor or whatever, that we can't justify um, beyond just accepting them as self-evident. But at the same time, we can still step back and question that. So uh, same thing is true for all of our deeply held values and all of our uh, convictions on what's important, what matters, and what doesn't matter. Right. He also talks about one one way in which people seem to try to escape this absurdity by by engaging in activities that are larger than them by being sort of devoting their lives in service to things like the state, the revolution, the progress of history, the advance of science, science, religion, the glory of God. But he said, you know, he points out these things also have to be justified. And, and you just, all you're doing is pushing it back. 
Right, pushing. And that's the back. whole thing about like you might have a system of justification which says exactly what really matters isn't just the little things that happen to me, but the things that happen to right. all people. And well, why does that matter? Right. And then right. whatever probably, system you're using, yeah, it's probably it, a good it, psychological defense against like your day to day sense of absurdity. Like we're not a dung beetle, or like you're a dung beetle, but you're playing for a team of dung beetles or whatever. You know, that probably psychologically pads pads it so that we you know the deeper the layers of epistemological sort of justification the harder it is to see that there's that there's nothing there um but all right so here's a question i have for you on that actually like so for me so there's two questions like i agree with nagel intellectually about pretty much everything in this essay I agree with a lot of what Camus is saying, except that he he feels like the urgent question, in fact, he says, it's the only important question is, like, should we commit suicide with now that mm-hmm. we have knowledge of the absurdity of existence and sort of devotes the whole book as a as a response to saying why we should not commit suicide. But he clearly sees that seems like the default position for him is that the suicide is the way out of this because the universe isn't giving us what we want. Right. Like, like life isn't, we've do, we, we sh- initially would think that life isn't worth living at this point. It's a, like uh, maybe something like antinatalism, but not, it's, it's, it's probably different. I'm not even bringing that in. <laughs> Rob Sicka, don't email us. So I, I think we've talked about this before, but I don't, I don't like, so while I recognize all of this intellectually, it doesn't bother me in the least like emotionally uh, by temperament this is not the kind of thing that bothers me that is um, so you're saying that is you you feel the sense of the absurd in the way that he describes i would agree with him about those okay, the theoretical you're not, you're claims feeling, that he's making but you're not feeling the, the sort of despair it doesn't make me feel despair I in see, any right. way i mean yeah. in the same in this in one sense like the the that the problem of epistemological justification doesn't make me feel despair um right. about what i know because there is some local sense in which which i think i can i'm perfectly fine living my life with these local rules about how to determine true beliefs and not true beliefs and that's enough for me. So I don't, I don't despair daily that like we can't know things. Right. I think that's the, the exact right analogy. Um, but I that- do, I do feel the sense of absurdity. Um, I think often, um, and my only protection really is that human brains are perfectly fine lapsing right back in to local meaning. So but do you feel like the despair of the de- sometimes, the absurdity? Yeah, sometimes. Sometimes. Sometimes I do. I'm like, what is this all? What are we doing? Like, what's it? You know, I remember when I was in grad school, um, there was, there's a, a room that was a, sort of a conference room where we had our brown bags or whatever. Um, and it had, uh, it was floor to ceiling, wall to wall, had j- journals. Um, in psychology and because that psych department had been around since the early 1900s, it had pretty much an an exhaustive collection of uh, the journal Psychological Review, which is one of our oldest and most sort of well-known high prestige journals. And every once in a while in grad school, I would pull some random issue off the shelf and I would read it and I'd realize I've never heard of this person 
Nobody right. ever talks about them, yet they published in the best journal in psychology in whatever year that was. And so me publishing in that journal, it just is a sobering view that I shouldn't be all that happy. Like this is all kind of just meaningless. Not only that, you would see ideas that were like totally ideas that people are presenting nowadays as new, but like had obviously been presented back then by somebody else just with different words. And, and it was a very Sisyphean feeling. Like, what am I doing? Like, what is... Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I, and, and what's funny about... I, well, we'll get to what his sort of resolution to this problem is. To the ext- I mean, he doesn't think the problem can be solved, but he thinks there's maybe like an attitude that's appropriate to right. it. And so we'll get to that in a sec. But the, my feeling has always been when I have stepped back and sort of questioned these things as... Oh, that's funny. And I, you know, like I took that shit so seriously and look, it doesn't really matter. Like it's not, Oh my God. Like I thought, like I thought what I was doing was really making a difference. And you know, like to the extent that I think it's making a difference, I still think that it's making a difference, even though I get that it's, you know, it doesn't make a difference in the larger scheme of things or like I can't justify ultimately why it's making a difference. It's just making a difference in that sort of local sense that I think that it's making a difference. Right. right, You know? Yeah. 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 Uh, So maybe the difference is only that the the feeling that emo feeling lasts a little bit longer in me and, uh, and and it does depress me. Um, but he says, uh, what sustains us is in belief as in action is not reason or justification, but something much more basic than these. For we go on in the same way, even after we are convinced that the reasons have given out. If we tried to rely entirely on reason and pressed it hard, our lives and beliefs would collapse, a form of madness that may actually occur if the inertial force of taking the world and life for granted is somehow lost. If we lose our grip on that, reason will not give it back to us. That's a great little passage. That is right great. There. It's a great paper. Um, <laughs> it is. Yeah. And then he uh, quotes, and then he footnotes the famous Hume thing where he got really depressed. He was more emo like you, I think, <laughs> and could get really depressed about, you know, not being able to justify like his personal identity in any way, and then would go down and play backgammon and have a few beers. And, yeah. Which is a, a, another great consistent line in the Rick and Morty shows. They're, they're constantly presented with these external grand, uh, grand ideas and grand facts about the universe writ large that would normally blow your mind. And uh, Rick is constantly saying, just don't think about it. <laughs> That's the solution. But, Just don't think. But about it's it. it I, I, so I like the end of the the Hume quote. He says, "I converse and am merry with friends, and when after three or four hours amusement, I would return to these speculations, they appear so cold and strained <laughs> and ridiculous that I can't find it in my heart to enter them any farther." So it's like you go back to the, those feelings of despair. After you've had a few beers and played backgammon, it just seems like, like what the like what was I thinking? Like what's wrong with me that I would even think that that was a huge problem in the first place? So this th- one way, and I thought about this when I was reading uh, the article yesterday, is that this is the great healing power of comedy for me is the willingness to point out the absurdity and yeah. laugh at it. 
right? And, and in some ways, so much good comedy is, is pointing out how silly, like we, how we are the dung beetles um, and how yet we realize this absurdity and to, to laugh at it is, is I think the best way of dealing uh, for me personally That's right. of getting rid of it. Right. Cause I don't drink beer or play pool or backgammon. You um, don't drink beer. I just don't drink a lot of beer. Um, do you play backgammon? No, no. <laughs> Shesh bash as it's called. In it. Yeah, I agree. Best stand up comedians sort of capture the sense of absurdity yeah. probably better than any, uh, anybody, uh, you know, like comic shows do that. <laughs> they capture all sides of it. The, the poignancy of coming to realize that what you thought was important is not as important right. as you thought. And, but at and, the same time, the sort of that there are these things that still that you still can't escape thinking that's ma that matter, like your family or whatever. You know? And it, one 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 way in which certain comedy does it is by uh, like the, the curb your enthusiasm style, where uh, here is somebody who takes every little. The right. smallest, most trivial aspect of life, and inflates it to cosmic importance. Never seeming, <laughs> right. never seeming to have this dilemma that this is meaningless, but rather doubling down on like the the fact that no, <laughs> no, you need to know that it wasn't me who stained your wooden table. Like, and I'm right. willing to throw away like my entire wedding, my entire marriage, in order to make this point because this little pat facet of my life is of cosmic importance. Right? You are abusing the norms about sampling, how, how many samples you can get at a store. And I like, it doesn't yeah. matter if like my friend's kids and you know, these kids that are staying in my house can't go to private school. Like principled, that's principled neurosis. <laughs> Right. It's just like that is a that's categorical that there is a limit to the number of free samples that you can <laughs> you can have. Oh, it's so great. Let, let's get to the conclusion that Nagel has because he takes kind of a shot at Camus. I love this shot of Camus at the end. Uh, and he says, you know, that and this is true about it. so the end of the myth uh, of Sisyphus, Camus rejects suicide but it's almost like he makes it a kind of grandiose gesture and he says that you're going to that sisyphus you you must one must imagine him happy as he walks down the mountain knowing just that this is the thing that he's going to do every single day and not denying any aspect of it not pretending anymore that he that that pushing up the boulder has meaning but just investing whatever meaning he has just subjectively into what he's doing just walking down the mountain taking like every step understanding that that's what he's doing getting to the bottom pushing it up feeling the rock all that and and he and i actually find that there's something kind of moving about that but it's true that he he, he makes it sound like heroic yeah, in a yeah. certain way. Like he's conquered the absurd. Yeah. And so Nagel's response to that, do you, uh, is yes, that this seems to me romantic and slightly self-pitying. That's great. Yeah. yeah. I, that's the, like I had to immediately highlight that our absurdity warrants neither that much distress nor that much defiance. 
At the risk of falling into romanticism by a different route, I would argue that absurdity is one of the most human things about us, a manifestation of our most advanced and interesting characteristics. So he's just like, calm the fuck down, Camus. Like, yeah. <laughs> like it's this image of, of this Sisyphean shaking your fist at the gods and finding meaning despite the meaninglessness. I, I always did find it not necessarily grandiose, but an odd way out of cer- the certainty of the meaninglessness was to embrace meaning just sort of out of thin air. Um, uh, never quite sat well with me as a, as sort of beautiful as that image is of the Sisyphus with dignity. You know? Yeah, walking down the mountain <laughs> with a kind of like like a little scorn on his face. He says, like, let me just read the last little bit. Yeah. He says, like the capacity for epistemological skepticism, it results this sense of absurdity from the ability to understand our human limitations. It need not be a matter for agony unless we make it so, nor need it evoke a defiant contempt of fate that allows us to feel brave or proud. Such dramatics, even if carried on in private, betray a failure to appreciate the cosmic unimportance of the situation. (laughs) If subspecies... I'm pronouncing that right. There is no re- if if uh, under the aspect of eternity, there is no reason to believe that anything matters. Then that doesn't matter either, and we can approach our absurd lives with irony instead of heroism or despair. And I think that's right. And I don't know. Like I think I've sort of naturally had that been my temperament. It's not in any way a conscious choice on my part. It's just been sort of my temperament anyway. But that also seems right to me. Right. Just so that I can focus on what's important, it's eternitatis. <laughs> <laughs> eternitatis. Um, so okay, that, so that matters. Yeah, that, that's why I pointed it out. This yeah. is we yeah. got to get shit right. Come on, this this is some meaning. This is a podcast. <laughs> um, like, let's just like set aside. Obviously, that that's the one exception. <laughs> this podcast is the one thing that is ultimately justified. As Sisyphean as it seems, every once in a while. There's a way in which I agree with Nagel that that you know there is there's something weirdly uh, the, the solution of inflating this absurdity into this sort of cosmic shaking your fists at the gods is an odd sort of solution to what that realization was to begin with that this is absurd and doesn't matter like that it's absurd and doesn't matter sh- shouldn't lead you to inflate the trivial to ultimate importance. Um, there is something Make in think, oh, this is a tragedy. No, <laughs> yeah. it doesn't matter. Did no, you get it, that it doesn't? What, it, what about it doesn't matter? Did you not understand? <laughs> you know? Um, um, yeah. In some ways you think, you know, like Camus is, is really being emo in that, like if there were a way in which his life did clearly have meaning, would he be unable to, to like, you know, take this grand stance against the universe? He'd be like, oh no, I guess, I guess. This- I mean that. It, it is. It's like we can't even conceive of a way that the universe exactly. could matter. Right. That's the that's, that's the, the point. That's the ultimate irony of the whole thing. Right. And uh, and so, but there is something, and this is where the philosopher Dan Harmon, <laughs> creator of Rick and Morty, one of the things that I think he points out, uh, where this tremendous sense of the meaninglessness of our lives, every once in a while, it can insert itself in a in a a moment where we realize that we've been taking something so seriously that it helps to remember that nothing matters. So, right. so his view is, look, nothing matters. That's true. 
Um, we can't we can't live our lives thinking that though. Or obviously, like we have I have to go buy food right after we finish recording, or else I won't eat, and my daughter won't eat. So as absurd as I want to call that, it's still I still have to do it. Um, but if you're in an argument with your significant other or your or your child or whatever, every once in a while, just remembering that none of this matters can be a really helpful tool to keep you sane, right? So rather yeah. than being a, 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 a vessel for insanity, it's more like a, humans aren't in danger of committing suicide because of the absurdity of life. Humans are in danger of doing all kinds of bad shit because they've taken life way too seriously. Right. 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 And so so this is a good respite every once in a while to remind yourself that nothing matters that much. And in fact, and and it, another thing Harmon points out is what's clear is that there there is a local sense where things do matter. Like when I don't need to seek external justification when I am sitting on the couch with my dog and looking at its eyes of pleasure looking at me and I have a bonding moment. I'm, there's no need for me to step outside of that moment and wonder whether or not it is ultimately uh, meaningful because it is locally meaningful. And those yeah. moments of local meaning are the way that I get around it. Where And I don't expect anything more from it. Yeah. It's like, what, what did said, I think? Like, well, well, how does that matter? You know, in the ultimate scheme of things, I was like, well, I, you're, you're misunderstanding what I'm saying. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Like yeah. it doesn't have to matter in any grand scheme. It matters now to me, to us, to you and your partner. So then and here might be an objection to this whole line of thought, which is, and you know, my inclination is to do a conceptual analysis of matters. It's, but it's, why like your, can't, it's, your, it's like your body has changed and it's causing you to have these different thoughts. Like it's weird. You're going through these weird metamorphosis changes. So maybe the, like what we mean by mattering is just those local senses of mattering. Yeah. That, our mistake is to seek the external justification. And I think that while I, I can see the pull to that view, I, I think Nagel's point is, but we can still always step back, at least for many of the things that we devote our lives to and ask, what's really the point of this? Yeah. You know, yeah. like, uh, and, 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 and I don't, and, you know, I don't know what he would say about these moments that just seem sort of that to give us exactly what we want, no more, no less, you know, yeah. like, and life does give you those things. Yeah, like you don't want anything more from it. You don't pretend that it means anything more than it does. But so, then there are these other things, you know, like when my book comes out and like how that's received and like, you know, or I, like I do want the, it to be well received and well sold. So pre-order your copy now. <laughs> and uh, and like the, those things matter to me, but I can also and I can't deny that they matter to me, but I can also step back and ask. But really, it doesn't matter, you know. Right. But I, I think still get your pre-order. <laughs> I think that um, one of the so one of the things I guess one of the distinctions to be made is is in our daily lives we we engage in activities that are clearly linked to higher order goals. So I am doing this in order to publish another paper, which is in order to have a stronger right. CV, which is in order to get a good job. In those cases, I think that's when it's easy to to fall into the the um, meaninglessness trap where you say, where 
or if you take that to its logical extent, right. you realize Let's nothing say all matters. those things happen. Mm-hmm. But when you are doing things that are that aren't so clearly linked to a, a hierarchy of goals, like spending an evening with your significant other, um, where like, sure, you could you could say somehow that there is some goal of happiness in life in general, but really that is the goal. The goal is to have a happy evening with your significant other there. You're less tempted to, to take that external external view. And if you did, it would actually ruin the moment, right? This is (laughs) right. This is, um, so maybe there are different kinds of activities that lend themselves more or less to that feeling of absurdity in a psychological sense. Um, and I wonder what the, I, I don't know if there's any sort of generalized way of coming up with a theory right? of when that feeling of absurdity seems more natural and when it doesn't. Um, right. But I think you're right that it's those things that are leading to some other thing, which is leading to some other thing where you can really step back and start to ask yourself, well, Wait, why do I care about this so much? Right. But there's and then there's other things where that the answer to that question is very clear. Right. But, I'm square of the belief that Harmon expresses, which is the save these moments of absurdity to get you out of those times when you yeah. really might be engaging in things that are absurd, right? When you've realized that you've made such a big deal out of who got uh, assigned to the committee that, you know, did they yeah. not choose you on purpose or whatever? That's when you can deploy this sense of absurdity to your advantage. Um, there is nothing more absurd than an <laughs> academic committee meeting. If you want to talk about the pretensions to importance to actual importance, oh like I can never believe when, <laughs> when there's like the, one of those emails uh, where somebody is soliciting feedback on this document and I yeah. take it as purely symbolic gesture. And then like, within an hour, there's somebody who is like highlighted problematic aspects of the way the document is written. And I'm like, uh, when you're in a situation where you, the world is fucking with you like you know you i don't know if that something just seems so unjust is happening to you uh, yeah. that's when i think it does have psychological benefit to just yeah. step back and be like okay fine they're fucking with you know like yeah. that journal just rejected the board rejected this paper after positive reviews from the referee uh for no good reason like yeah Yeah. you can want to burn down all their houses or you can just recognize that the universe is and it's not necessarily intellectually yeah it's not necessarily an intellectually dishonest step because it's true it's totally true it's the the dishonest step is in in just failing to recall that that's true in in cases where you're not upset where I'm okay with that kind of dishonesty. Like when I, (laughs) you know, if I win some award, which I never do, um, then I'll be like, yeah, this shit means something, right? Yeah. (laughs) But even then, like, that's when I actually feel the closest to despair is when good things happen. That's actually And that you've worked really hard for. And then you, and then it just becomes clear that you're already not like, that satisfied with it and what does it really mean like that so when good things happen is the closest to where i actually feel like i i am temperamentally inclined to question like right. why it matters like you know that feeling after a threesome where you're like that really was this what, what i was <laughs> I don't <laughs> it's sisyphian for me i was like punch time to make the donuts that was a reference to a very old commercial. <laughs> um, all right. Have we solved the problem? I love how you pretend that you're younger than I am. 
well, in any real like meaningful sense. It's it's getting to the point where it's not going to reach the just noticeable difference anymore. You know, like when you're 18, a 16 year old is like, like seems so different. But when you're our age, it really is getting to the point where like, what are, you know, whatever. It's not that big of a difference. All right. So uh, life doesn't have meaning, but that's okay. Buy the goddamn fucking glasses for your colorblind father-in-law. You'd be wrong not to. And that's the way it is. That's an old reference. That is an old reference. That's the way it is. And that's the way it is. Just a very bad wizard.